This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So uh, as I was walking up to the podium, actually, uh, Michelle said something, you know, I can't believe it. These are the streets that I go through, right? I mean, to go. <laughs> Every time we watch a film, we feel a, a moment, you know, when we feel a moment of recognition, it's a very gratifying feeling. It's like an identification, not just with the characters, but with the space, right? And I really love the, uh, the films where the city is one of the characters. Yeah. And the city is always the third person in the cab, right? right? Because we always go places and we always see what is going on behind them. And of course, there is the famous conversation, right, which I mentioned to you, uh, that uh, a few months after seeing the film for the first time, I found myself in Inglewood, right? And I had to go down to Olivera, Olivera Street. And I'm thinking, oh, okay, right, I know how to get there, right? <laughs> I'm taking right. Sepulveda to Slauson, yeah. then I'm going up to La Brea, going yeah. north, I take the sixth, I go all over, you know, and I'm going like, I heard this stuff before. <laughs> <laughs> and you wrote it, and I was incorporating and thinking about it. So, uh, when, when, I mean, you are from Australia, I'm, I'm from Italy, right? Yes. And I think we probably share the same feeling when we go to Los Angeles, like, my God, what a place, right? Yeah. I mean, the feeling that everything is possible there, all these kind of people. How, did you, how, do, you, how do you relate to Los Angeles? Oh, I love it. It's, it's a place where dreams come true, you know, especially for me growing up in Australia. Uh, there was only one film school in the whole country when I got out of college and uh, had to be 22 and have a college degree to get in, and I was 21 with a college degree, so I failed the prereq, and uh, I was like, that's it, I'm going to come to L.A., but they don't care how old you are. So <laughs> I, I love it. Look, um, but it, you know, it's, it's, it's an amazing city, you know, 30 million people. And I remember reading an article about, uh, you know, how many murders there are a week and how many of those murders actually ever reach a courtroom and how many right. of those actually get a conviction. And, you know, it's a really you know, scarily small number. Uh, so it's a city that's, you know, easy to kind of get away with murder in. Right. And it, it, it just, it, it was one of those things where, you know, every morning, you know, I, I'd hear on the radio, the traffic report, and it would right. be, uh, you know, four or fives backed up here as a fatality accident on take this pass, get around here, and, and you go, oh, okay, great, right, and then you'd think, hang on, fatality accident? That means someone just died five right. minutes ago, and all, all, all the news is just what right. route to take. Right. That's, right. That's, as, that's as big as a bump as we're getting, you know, it's that thing of, if a tree falls in a forest, does anyone hear it, you know, in a city, right. 30 million people, if someone dies, does anyone care? Or should they care? You know, and that really, you know, kind of informed the theme of, of, of what this is. You know, talking about Rwanda and the genocide. That's one of my favorite lines, kind of right? Yeah. You don't know the guy in the, in the trunk either. Yeah, well, it, it's, it's a point, you know, and, and, and you know, he makes a good point. Yes. You know? And that's the problem, yeah. right? That the killer makes all the good points. Right, right, exactly, <laughs> yeah. The killer's got to have a point of view. He's got to have something that you go, oh, actually, can, I can, you know, he'd be an interesting guy to have to dinner, actually, wouldn't he, you know? Right. Apart from the fact that he kills people for a living. Right. Um, that was always the idea behind him, that he actually had some, you know, some, some good solid viewpoints. And, and this character is one of my favorite predators mm. of all times, right? Okay. I mean, he's the coolest, but not just cool. He's literally a predator. There's nothing yeah. personal about killing. Absolutely not. It's just a job. 
just the job, it's the just mindset the job. of the job, yeah. Right. Yeah. And dying. There is nothing personal about dying no. either, right? No. I mean, it's just one of the, the name on a list. One of the things on the, that, that can happen on the job, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. so. In fact, one of the one of the the only scene that was cut from the script is uh, actually the scene where they talk about what collateral is, and they mention what right. the title is, and. Uh, they're talking about how many uh, kills Vincent's made of his career, and he says something like, you know, 32 kills and three collaterals. And, and uh, Jamie Foxx says, well, what's collateral? What's that? And, and, and Vincent says, oh, you know, innocent people, you know, people in the wrong place at the wrong time, you know, innocent bystanders. And, and right. Jamie Foxx says, does that bother you? And he's like, of course it bothers me. You know, nobody likes working for free. You know, and it's that mindset. That, that's all it means to him, you know. It's just, it's a job. Like anything else. Like making chairs, like serving coffees. It's all it is. And he has, you know, I'm very fascinated by moral lines. We all have different moral lines. Every single person in this room has a different moral center. Right. And, you know, most of us fall within this region. But then there are people that are out here and there are people out here. And right. it, it's abs- they absolutely see nothing wrong with the things they do that other people would see things wrong. And right. I, I find that fascinating. And, and it's great. I mean, there is even, and, and this is one of the great uncruising of Tom Cruise yeah, right. films, right? I mean, one of the great. This is the uh, Tom Cruise movie you like if you don't like Tom Cruise. Yeah. Exactly, right? It's where everybody agrees. This is, a, this is a great one. Yeah. When you see actually a tinge of regret on his face, right? And I think you Ooh. actually put it in when he, when he shoots the, uh, uh, the jazz mm. uh, guy. And yeah. after, and, that, and, that hurt. And, and it has that look of, you know, I've lost something. Yes, yeah. I mean, this is the job. Because this guy was a great, this is a right. great guy. It's a great guy. Great jazz player. Right. Wow. Right. Bummer. Done. Move <laughs> on. Yeah, look, it, it is. Um, you know, I think Tom really, really just dove into that part and uh, kind of disappeared into it. And you kind of forget that, right. that it, it's Tom Cruise. You know, right. one of the things that Michael had him do was to dress up as a FedEx guy and go deliver FedEx packages and see if anyone recognized him. Wow. And he just kind of, you know figured out how just to blend in and just not look people in the eye and no one recognized him you know Fantastic. and so he had that kind of just disappearing into that because that was the idea of that character he could blend in anywhere that's a great one mm. uh, and and i love what you do with um with the tracing of the city through the music you know and they go from you know to hano to to uh you know uh, tech yeah, uh, and uh, um, and 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 going through from music to music to music to place to place to place. I mean, you know, that's that's the contrivance of the story, but it works, and you make it work, right? And that's I think is is the big the big deal. Uh, I was looking up, I and mean, one somebody who's a great fan, there are lots of websites and places dedicated to this film. There's one in particular that I was looking up, and that was uh, a guy Shane Black from the Entertainment Weekly. Have you ever seen that website? No, no. he. Um, actually must be one of your most rabid fans. Oh, really? Yes. <laughs> uh, he actually looks at the film and says, okay, this is 12 different films. And I'll just give you, oh. you know, a few other things. It's a buddy movie. It's a horror movie, right? Vince is a ghost. Mm. You know, it comes from nowhere, ends mm-hmm. up nowhere, right? It's this guy that goes round, round, you know, on, 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 the, on the thing. It's a pre-apocalyptic film about the, the, the demise of Western civilization, wow. right? I mean, the whole idea. Um, Very <laughs> you, never, you never thought about that. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I didn't, I didn't know it. <laughs> right? It says it's a superhero movie because at some point, actually, uh, uh, the, the Jamie Foxx character, he, Max, has to impersonate, right, the, the, the guy. I mean, has to become Vince. Yeah. Well, it, look, it's a, big, it's a big thing for me in storytelling. That I, I like stories where, where the lead character does something at the end right. that they never would have done in the beginning right. but makes sense because of everything in between. Right. 
you know, and so here you've got a guy who's essentially afraid of confrontation, afraid yeah. of actually living his life, of, of doing anything, who has to, you know, through a series of events, you know, get stronger and stronger and stronger. And ironically, it's, it's Vincent that pushes him to become stronger. And ironically, that's right. what ends up killing Vincent, you right. know. So right. I, I like that kind of interplay. You right. know, and I love on. that moment when, when uh, uh, Max is, is trying to figure out how to, uh, first of all, it's something very, that we don't do normal people, right? Shoot a window, yeah, right? right? So he's trying right. to figure out the thing and then you just go like, you know, what's going to happen? <laughs> what is yeah. What's going to happen? And then Vince does the same thing, but six times over and professionally. Right. <laughs> Just <laughs> right. a few minutes later. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that, that, you know, constantly. <laughs> so it's, it's, uh, it's 12 movies. Let me just go to a couple movies. more. Superhero detective, but the detective dies, right? Yes. Um, it's a movie about the impossibility of the American dream, that, you know, thing that he has. It's about uh, decruising the cruise. Uh, it's <laughs> it's uh, an existential film. And it's a film that changed everybody's career. How did this film change your career? I mean, um, it was interesting. It actually changed my career before the film ever got made. Um, the script was sold to DreamWorks in '99, and it spent about three years wow. with every director and actor going on and wow. off and on and off and on and off. And uh, but over the course of that three years, people started to pass that script around. They were like, "Oh, there's this script I really like. You should read it. You should read it." And it, and it kind of went around Hollywood. And I ended up getting all sorts of work just out of the script right. for three years. Mention one of your uh, one of their favorite films. Which one? <laughs> Pirate oh, Pirates. Yeah, yeah, I got Pirates out of that. Uh, Derailed, Thirty Caribbean. Days of Night, uh, all these other films and jobs, and you know. And uh, so it really became a thing where. By the time the film got made, you know, if, it, if the film turned out bad, it, 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 it was still okay for me because people at least would go, well, I, I like the script, right. you know, but uh, right. fortunately, you know, it turned out well. And, uh, right. and so, so, yes, yeah, so by that time, yes, obviously, then that helps as well. Right. Once you have a film come out and once the film does well and is respected, then you get, you know, more And it was actually the sixth highest grossing film of the year. Oh, was it? Yes. Oh, very time. cool. Yes. Did yeah. not know that. You should know these That's things. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's Michael Mann's uh, highest grossing film. Yeah. And I think it's the only one he didn't write. Oh, so, really? Interesting. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that must have hurt. It must have, yeah. <laughs> <sighs> Sorry about that. Uh, uh, so uh, I'm, I'm sure you guys are just <laughs> chomping at the bit. Uh, anybody who has a question that is uh, dying to ask? Yes, of course. Go ahead. Mr. Bitti, thank you very much for being here. First My of all, um, I've never seen the movie. I have to say that I thoroughly enjoyed it. Oh, good. I'm very curious about the character of Vincent. Um, I felt that he's the real protagonist of the movie. Uh, he occupies a very dichotomous role. Uh, he's introduced as someone who kills the bad guys, and then changes his narrative. Uh, but through the cinematography, we often see reflection of him in the mirrors, in the building, uh, in the metro, in the car. There's always this image of the mirror and self-reflexivity uh, through his action. Uh, I want to ask you, uh, what is his real drive to kill? Is it the pursuit of an existential angst? Or is it solitude? He's someone who dies alone, and his job is to kill, but he spares the life of Max. Why? Yeah. Um, look, to me, it's all about uh, you know, death as a way of life. You know, what kind of person does that? And to me, that, that, that kind of person is essentially broken. 
deep down inside. That's why kind of at the end you have Max kind of going, what is with you kind of a thing. Um, so it's really, it's really just a broken guy who comes from a broken home, has had a broken life. And you know, clearly he's served uh, in the military and you know, you know, God knows what, what's happened to him there. So it's just essentially the broken guy who doesn't, whose moral line is kind of, you know, he's been trained to kill, he's been paid to kill by the government and then by the private sector. So it's never been, uh, it's never been wrong in his eyes. You know, no one's ever, no one, in his world, it's never been wrong to kill. So, that, so it's not, I don't think it's an existential thing. I think he's, it's just simply what he does. It's what he does best, and he's really good at it. And he appreciates uh, other people that are really good at what they do and really care about they do and what they do. And that's, I think, why he takes to Max. You know, he sees this guy's got a great cab, he knows, a clean cab. He knows all the routes backwards and forwards, and he can tell you down to the minute when he'll be anywhere. And Vincent responds to that. You know, and look, frankly, it's just easier to get have one guy on retainer for a night rather than to kind of flag down a cab after every kill. So it's practical. And then it's also the fact that he kind of sees, I think, a kindred spirit in, in Max in that he is, you know, professional, really good at what he does and uh, reliable, you know, and that, that's what he needs. He needs a cab driver for the night. I think you hinted a precedent, too, in the script, right? Yeah, when yeah, that there's before. the Oakland uh, PD guy right. who said that, you know, this has happened before. And so, yeah, it's an, it's, it's an idea of, you know, a hitman comes to town, doesn't know the town that well, hires a cab driver. Cab drivers know the town really well. And, uh, you know, I think actually a, a couple of months after this film came out, a cab driver got hijacked from L.A. and was forced to drive to Vegas for, for, for some right. reason. But, uh, right. yeah, it, uh, it, it, look, it, it, all, it all stems from the, the idea of, you know, when you're a kid, you get taught two rules, right? You get taught, you know, never get into a car with a stranger. Right. And if you're driving a car, it's never pick up a hitchhiker, right? And that's basically the essence of what cabs are. Every single day, millions and millions of strangers get into this small space together and trust each other implicitly. The cabbie's trusting that you're not going to pull a gun on him and you're trusting the cabbie's not going to drive off some back alley and kill you. You know, it's this amazing kind of trust for, for a city that we all, is so disconnected and nobody knows, another, knows each other and nobody trusts each other. It's an amazing you know, bond that happens you know, thousands of times a day, hundreds of thousands of times a day all over the place. And I just find that it's a very interesting setting for drama, if you will. And you just called it Vince. The city is disconnected. This is, yeah, well, I, I, I believe that. You know, it's, uh, how can it be connected? There's just so many people. Right. Small town, you know, one person dies, everyone feels it. It's the talk right. of the town for a week. Everyone goes to the funeral. The right. business is closed down. It's a felt. Right. How many people died today? Right. Do we know? Did it affect our lives in any way? You know? And look, I'm not, it's, it's not, I'm not saying we're all bad people or anything. I'm just saying this is, this is the nature of living in a city of 30 million people. This is what we've become. The value of human life has decreased dramatically. And yet the film is so claustrophobic. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Because it's all we can get Well, it was designed to be a cheap film. It was meant to be two guys in a cab, you know, and that was it. And running. I, I was trying to make a little $5 million film. In fact, I had, I had just done the $5 million draft of it when Michael and, and everyone finally came on board, and, and, and they made it for $60 million. So, you know, it was, uh, it was one of those things. But, uh, it was, yes, it was designed to be done uh, relatively cheaply. Yeah. And, and, of course, I mean, having the two guys in the cab offers all kinds of opportunities for the camera to be right behind... You yeah. know, exactly where the dragon is, literally, right? Yeah. We keep looking at Max's neck. And well, you'll, it's yeah. kind of you'll see in certain scenes, too, Vincent moves literally behind right. Max, and then they're there, you know, so it's, you know, when someone's right behind you, you're more uncomfortable. Right. Right. At least there, you can kind of glance, you can see him in the mirror, you know, right. so there's all sorts of ways you can stage within that car to make it uh, interesting, bring Vincent into the front seat, you know, all that kind of stuff. Absolutely. Uh, mm. There was somebody else right... Uh, in front somewhere that had raised a hand. 
that I saw before. All right, how's it going? Um, yeah, so, if this movie were made today, would Max have been an Uber driver? Yeah, probably. <laughs> That's a joke. Okay, um, real quick. <laughs> now, look, I mean, would the film have been made today? You know, there's no superhero, there's no pre-existing title awareness, there's none of that stuff, and uh, uh, I don't know. I don't know if it would get made today. That's true. Um, okay, and then the real question is... Uh, did you have any like specific influences? Like when you were writing this script, uh, like day to day, would you see things and put them in your script, or were you like set on something and then like just like grinded it out and wrote it? I grinded it out over ten years. Yeah, <laughs> that's grinding. It, look, it was one of those. Uh, it, it was a, a crazy idea that I had in the back of a cab when I was seventeen, and then it you know became a first draft, a first, you know second draft, third draft, and every year I would just take it out and rewrite it and rewrite it. And yes, over the years, you know things I'd seen, uh, you know the traffic reports, like I was saying earlier, all that kind of stuff started to feed itself into the script, and, and it would you know start to alter, and we'd get a life, and it would have more of a more of an identity than just a straight thriller. But initially, it was just like a straight concept, a high concept, two guys in a cab, one of them's a bad guy, what do you do, kind of a thing, you know, that kind of every man kind of a, kind of a story. So it, uh, but it, yeah, uh, over the years, yeah, things, just things from my life, things that I deserve just kind of, you know, seep their way into it, so it becomes, you know, more flavorful, more, like I say, more uh, unique uh, than just, just like a kind of standard high, high uh, concept thing. And uh, yeah, just, just kept rewriting and rewriting and rewriting and Getting notes and rewriting and rewriting and rewriting and uh, finally, I'm just so glad it got made. Finally, no, it <laughs> yeah. really is all in the writing because I mean, this is a, a ride through town with incidents on the way, yeah. right? But in order to make it interesting, it's not the killing; those are actually the pauses, right? Yeah. In the conversation between right. the two guys. Right. Exactly. And what? Yeah, when I first met Michael, he, he said, I've tried rearranging scenes in the script, and every time I do it, it all falls apart. And I said, yes, please don't do that. <laughs> and uh, you know, to his credit, he, he shot that script. Yes, he did. Because yeah. I, I, I actually found the script online, and I was reading it, and I was like, this is the film. This is really the <laughs> film, right? It, you, can, you can imagine exactly, right, how you would do it. It's so mm. specific, so interesting. Mm. Hello. Hi. Hi. Um, do you see your film as part of like the the noir like scape? And was the trolley ride like the, the that on the train? Is that a nod to uh, Barton Key's line in Double Indemnity about getting on the trolley together? Getting on the trolley? No, it's not. I love Double Indemnity, but it's, it, no, yeah, that right. uh, that never occurred. Yeah, but yes, to answer your first question, yeah, it's absolutely noir. It's always film noir. It was uh, L.A. It was shot. The whole film basically takes place at night. And it was all about light and shadow, you know. And uh, I love the concept of light and shadow in terms of hero and villain, and you know, the, the the two being two sides of the same coin. One's light, one's dark, all that kind of stuff. So um, yeah, I love all that stuff. And yeah, it was very much, very much meant to be a, a noir noir action film, really. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, from, yeah, from the start, that was uh, that was always the intent. Yeah. I like the way it actually um, subverts many expectations. Los Angeles is surprisingly clean in this film. Right? <laughs> and uh, it even takes place, and, and I like the fact that it's not only this kind of sprawling metropolis, but also the action takes place vertically. Yeah. Because you go from you know, the 16th floor down to the uh, subway, yeah. right? All the way, back and forth. And, and then all and across those freeways, yeah. Right, and all oh. this kind of intertwined things. Yeah, so, something you, you were saying I meant to say earlier about Vincent. Uh, if you notice the way he's shot, he's kind of shot as a part of the landscape. 
uh, a lot of times it'll be it'll be Vincent, you know, with LA in the background or the lights, you know, right up by his face. And there's that one shot where he just kind of rises up into the lights of LA. So I, I think you know a lot, of, you know, dressing him in grey, all that kind of stuff was to kind of make him feel like an animal in LA, you know, like that that he's a product of this great urban sprawl that we live in, kind of a thing. So and he was blending into it by you know dressing like that and just by you know blending into the landscape around him. That was. Yeah, that's why he shot that way and, and why he was dressed that way and all that kind of stuff. With the brilliant touch of the coyote, yes. which I can't get over. <laughs> it's so, so perfect, right? The idea that you, every time you go to Los Angeles, you know, the wilderness is just around the corner. It is. And it could be coming in and the animal could be coming in. Oh, it's, it's in, definitely right? coming in. All this is going to go away at some point. Yes. has to. You know, who knows when. But, you know, they're going to take over eventually. And they're just waiting. That's what we told the Cody's. Just make it look like you're waiting for us to all go away. Give us that. So, I mean, so, did, who, who wrangles coyotes? That's <laughs> yeah, a Cody wrangler. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a thing. <laughs> look, they're dogs, you know. I mean, they're, yes. they're trainable. Yeah, I love They're one the of the idea. easier animals to train. I never thought about that, yeah. the coyote wrangler. Yeah. <laughs> go ahead. Um, this is kind of a personal question. Oh, okay. <laughs> What's your favorite city and why? In the world? Yeah. Wow. Um, I, you know, I mean, L.A. is the place where I met my wife. I you know, had my kids, you know, all my, my most favorite memories, you know, made my dreams come true, allowed me to, to make movies. Um, you know, so I, I think I would say Los Angeles um, as, as a place personally for me. You know, aesthetically, I, it's hard to beat Sydney. I think, uh, where I grew up with the Opera House and, the, you know, just beautiful to look at and all that. Um, New York is just, you know, the most vibrant place that I've ever been. Uh, Vegas is just so much fun. You know, <laughs> it's just adult paradise, you know. Uh, there, you know, I guess it's what you're in the mood for, you know. Vancouver's gorgeous, gorgeous city, a lot like Sydney. Uh, but just, I think for me personally, it would have to do with, yeah, uh, you know, what city has changed my life most for the better, and that's, that's definitely L.A. And that's also uh, Max's reply, right? Yeah, it, it, no, says, it's, it's his city loves like L.A., it's yeah, it's where home. I live. Yeah, right, right, exactly, that's, yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> yep. you put right, yourself, right what you know. <laughs> you put yourself in your characters. <laughs> yes, yes. All right. Uh, Hi, um, so from the story that you told, it seems like you had a pretty... Uh, amicable relationship with the director um, Michael Mann because it seems like he was pretty on board with like your vision and your story and he was cool with not really changing things around but um, I'm curious if you've ever been in a situation where like the director uh, where you maybe you didn't see eye to eye as much I obviously don't need you to drop names because that would probably start some uh, some trouble but I was just um, I was just seeing uh, how you would deal with a situation like that like how you would respond to somebody trying to like mess with your vision um, yeah look uh, it's a good question I mean uh, end of the day it's not your vision it's the director's vision in film in television it's your vision and you hire the director and you tell him what to do in film you know you you give him the script and it's and it's their vision so you've got to kind of surrender yourself to that i mean there there are a dozen things in 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 this film i go what really <laughs> you know that i would never have you know done that that way but you know that, that that's you know that's just the business that's that's just a part of it and you just kind of you know you're just grateful that the film got made and grateful that it's as good as it is you know and grateful that people respond to it as they do um 
So it's, it's really, you know, the people that get all up in arms and bent out of shape because you changed a word or a look or a meaning or something like that or you cut out a scene, they're the people that don't last long in, in the industry because, you know, it's, it's, it's really up to you. You know, there's a handful of filmmakers in Hollywood that get to make the films they want, the way they want to make them, a handful, literally four or five of them. And everyone else, all the rest of us, are just fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting for, you know, for what we want. So if you can't learn to, to roll, with, roll with the punches and you know, uh, uh, take a few for the team, then you know, it's, it's, it's not the industry for you. So um, uh, you know, I, 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 you know, I'm grateful. I'm grateful that, you know, for the, all the films of mine that have gotten made. If I disagree with choices of the director, that's... you know, you know Neither here nor there. It's just, just you know, the business. It's, it's what it is. So, uh, uh, yeah, you just move on to the next. What's next? You know. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, hi. Hello. Um, so I guess I'm wondering um, because I've seen this movie a couple times, and um, the ending never really st- struck me as surprising. Um, after he like rides off. Um, it just sort of made sense that they would that they would like try and leave the platform. Um, but seeing it this time, I felt like he kind of looks into traffic, and it's this weird moment of people finally being on foot. Um, and I was wondering how intentional was that um, in in the script, at least, or was that more of a um, cinematic decision after? You mean to have them walking on foot at the end? Well, to have them walking on foot at the end and then look into traffic, like almost like they're trying to hail a cab. Well, no, you know, that, is that like yeah. the wink and nudge at the end? Right, that, that's the idea, they're okay. looking for a cab. It okay. kind, of, kind of all comes full circle, yeah, that, that, that's the idea. Get it out of the, get out, you've been in a cab the whole movie, then you've been in a train, so let's get out on foot and, oh shit, we need a cab. Yeah, it's kind of like, you know, the irony of it, you know, kind of is, is, is what, it's, what it's meant to be. Yeah. And it could start over. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, I mean, there's a guy with a gun, you know, getting in the back of a cab, right? Uh, but yeah, that, 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 was, that was deliberate. Mm. Go ahead. Uh, like the director added any scenes to the movie that you thought were like beneficial in the end to like the overall. Um, now, like I say, he shot the script, but the way he shot it, I think you know, is uh, certainly particular to Michael Mann. Um, and I was I was actually noticing it just watching it this time through, just the way he holds on certain shots, the way he you know would you know cut to the the cab on the freeway or you know kind of. Uh, you know the way he'd, he'd, he'd shoot outside the cab, so you get the reflections, uh, you know, on, on the windshield. So it's a thousand and one things like that. That if I'd shot it, it would have been different. You know, uh, and that's that's you know what you get with you know any true, you know, uh, great filmmaker. They get you know to put their their stamp on it. So no, like look, I I, I do miss the collateral scene where they actually say what the frickin' title is. Uh, it didn't seem to bother anyone. It still bothers me. Uh, but like I say, I, I lived with this thing for 15 years before it got made, so um, you know I'm bound to have my little you know things with it, you know. But uh, no, I mean I'm, I've, I've, I've I've you know met so many people, you know, and you know, literally walked into rooms where people are talking about this film, and you know, I had no idea I had anything to do with it, you know, and telling me how much I, they like it and how I, I've got to see this film, and you know, uh, all over the world, and and it's it's uh, it's really. Uh, just really wonderful to see it, just how well it's resonated with people uh, over the years. And you know, the more years to go on, the more people see it, and uh, that's great. And this film also marked uh, almost the 
the end of, of, of most people's attempt to shoot on film. I mean, this was on digital. Yeah, it's digital video. Yeah, and, it's uh, one of the first on the Viper. It, it looks fantastic. Yeah. This film actually opened up an entire discussion on the issue of film noir and whether it would ever be possible to create true blacks, yeah. right, again, because... Uh, but but it fits perfectly well because Los Angeles doesn't have true blacks anymore. Right. Right. Los Angeles is all hazed it's all into hazed. this. It never gets night. Yes. Right? You know, yeah. in this sepia yeah. world. Yeah. Right. Uh, so it, it, I thought it was perfect. You know, yeah. absolutely perfect. Well, to me, it became a, a great storytelling tool. Right. You know, and I think that's the reason why you decide to shoot on DV or whatever it is you shoot. You know, you're telling a story. Let's let's use every single tool we can possibly use to tell right. the story the best we can. And, you know, a nighttime urban LA set thriller digital right. video was perfect. Right. And, and great, I, f- I forgot how many, I noticed actually uh, this time how many aerial shots yeah. there are. Yeah, right? yeah, and there's helicopters all the time. Yeah. You know, this eye in the sky that doesn't interfere with the little people who are going to die tonight. Right. right. I mean, there's nothing right. they can do. And then you see the, like, there, are, there are cameras mounted underneath the helicopter, and the helicopter is shiny. So you've got lights below, you've got lights here. Right. It's always light reflecting right. somewhere. The right. city. Is, is all through the all through the thing. Like, where's the police when you need it? Up there. Up there. Right. Yeah, yeah. And then you can. And she looks and out the not, window. Like, oh, they're not going to do anything about it. Right. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. We have two more questions. Uh, so it was yes. Hi. Hello. Um, before you even mentioned it just now, I want to know what the reason is for taking out the scene with collateral in it. Because uh, why he like, took it out? Why? Yeah. Why? Um, I never actually found out. It was never a thing. Just like it was just like uh, you know, didn't didn't you know, didn't work. Didn't you know? I, I think it was it was the scene in the in the cab right before he goes into the uh, uh, the bar to meet Felix. He was in there and he's saying, you know, how many people have you killed? He was saying, how long have you been doing this? How many people have you killed? That's where it all came from. And I just think, I think the scene was running too long and just just decided to cut it. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Don't know why. <laughs> Hello. Hey. So my question's uh, regarding like song song choice and as written into the screenplay and uh, so there's the instance with the coyote and uh, Max and Vincent see it and uh, Audio Slave. Yeah, uh, Chris yeah. Cornell, right? Yeah, song awesome. starts. Awesome. So I was wondering if you uh, <laughs> if you wrote that into it like in the in one of the drafts or nah. no? No. <laughs> look, song should, no, Look, I tell you what I did write in was the classical music the. Um, that, that was definitely in there because they were talking about classical music and, and all that kind of stuff. So that was the only real music I put in there uh, because it's the odds of getting that song are, you know, is it available? How much is it? You know, all that kind of... When you cut all it all together, does it actually even fit? You know, so it's, it's one of those things that I stay away from when I write. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's just basically too early to be making those choices unless it's something specific to the character, like, oh, they both like classical music, they bond over that. Right. Since that's a genre and you're not placing a song already, sorry. Have, since that's a genre, you don't have to worry about licensing and. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, exactly. So you know, and let the studio handle that. Have the fights later. You know, once the film is made, see you know, what they're willing to pay for and what they're not. Yeah, usually, professional writers never put songs, uh, specific songs. Yeah, in the not film. unless it's central to the plot or to right. characters. Right, because really... as you were saying, I mean, it's very difficult to figure out how to get that song, and it might take five years for the film to be made. Yeah. So, what would be cutting edge, right? When you wrote it, <laughs> it would be five, five years old right. as the film gets made. I mean, when I first thought of that, you know, we were listening to "Wake Me Up Before You Go Go." 
<laughs> Wouldn't have worked. In 2004, anyway. <laughs> yeah, every time I read a script from my students, there's always a specific song that they have to have on, on the Mac, and oh, it's not going to work. No. Look, it's, it's one of those things. I used, to, I used to cover scripts for a living, which means I used to you know, read professionally for producers or studios and you know, write synopses and say whether I liked it or not and break down story and structure and dialogue and all that kind of stuff. And you'd see the same five mistakes in every script. And one of them was like, you know, this song here and that song there. And, you know, it just, it, it's just one of those things where, you know, the guy, you can tell the writer's writing more with, you know, songs, you know, to tell what they should be figuring out how to tell in the writing, in the picture, right. you know. Um, the very first thing you've got to do is create a picture on the page. And that doesn't mean using Chris Cornell, because that's just cheating, you know. Uh, don't stop believing or something, you know. Oh, I get it now, you know. Well, I better get that song, you know. No, you know, write me a scene where the guy, you know, really, you know, doesn't want to stop believing. You know, figure out a way to, to do it visually is what I'm saying. You know what I, what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Work, you know, you've got you to gotta really work at it and, and really you know, paint that picture. And then, you know, someone comes along with the idea to use that song, great. And they can use it, great. Sometimes I think songs are too on the nose, you know. Uh, I think the song choice in, in this film was really good. You know, the, all the songs just kind of, you know, spoke to a, a feeling. You know, what, what the shadow and the sun mean? I don't know, but it's cool. It's Chris Cornell. It's Audio Slave. Love it. Um, what are your projects currently? And currently, uh, yes. And what do you do? Oh. Uh, talk about your directing a little bit and your and your uh, writing. Oh, okay. So, um, yeah, I always wanted to be a director, and uh, I figured, you know, I would write. Write and write and write scripts and learn from directors, you know, which, uh, um, which I did, you know, learning from Michael, you know, being on set, watching how he directed, right. uh, being on Pirates, being on, uh, you know, th these other films, uh, 310 to Humor with James Mangold, you know, just Baz Luhrmann on Australia, yeah. you know, yeah. really top of the line directors just watching what they did. Uh, and then uh, finally I was offered something to, a, a book to adapt, it was called Tomorrow When the War Began. And uh, I said, well, I'll, I'll, I'll adapt it if you let me direct it. I basically blackmailed them. And right. they were like, well, all right. <laughs> you know, and so I uh, finally got to direct. So that was my first film. It was an action movie set uh, down in Australia. Uh, and then my second film was uh, I, Frankenstein, which came out last year, mm -hmm. uh, which I wrote and directed. Uh, and then currently I'm working uh, on uh, several projects, a couple of films and some television shows, one of which actually is kind of like collateral, the TV show. Uh, it's called Syndicate, and uh, oh. it's about a hitman who works for a, for a transnational uh, crime That's syndicate. Yeah, but it gets again gets into this kind of this kind of mindset of you know uh, death as a way of life, living you know for the oh. sake of dying, all that kind of stuff. I, I just find it you know fascinating. Great idea. You know? uh, and especially now that we've been through two wars, and you've got a whole bunch of broken uh, uh, veterans coming home, and uh, you know what is their psyche on on what it's like to kill? You know especially after being in places like Afghanistan and Iraq where the price of life is as low as it's ever been in human history. Yeah. You know, so yeah. it's, it's just a, creates fascinating characters that are really messed up. A lot Wait, of fun to write. messed up characters. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, this was a great pleasure. And uh, I hope uh, to see you again sometime on this. I'd love to. Love to. In, in this place. Right? Really my pleasure. Right. Thank you so much. Thanks, Anna. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.